Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is good to be able to be here with you. CIU has a special place in my heart. I did one of my degrees here and I'm thankful for the worldview that was imparted to me. I thank Dr. Chrisman, I thank Dr. Rogers, Dr. David Croto, who's a friend of many years as well. Just thank God for this institution and for the heart behind it. And I would like to say as well that I'm excited to see even just the joy this morning as we've sing, sung and worshiped the Lord. And I pray that this morning as we open God's word that you will be blessed and that you will see Christ. You did not come here to hear me. You came here to hear the word of God in Christ elevate and proclaimed. Amen? Amen. That's why we're here. So please open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. I'm going to warn you up front. If you do not open your Bibles and you do not read along with me, you will get lost. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You can go ahead and put a finger in Exodus 19 as well. We're going to look back at that and uh, we're going to go through God's word and see Christ. Now, my topic that was assigned to me this morning, which I'm so excited to actually share with you, is victory in prayer by knowing where you stand. Victory in prayer by knowing where you stand. When we talk about prayer and we talk about the foundation and the power of prayer, it has more to do with our location rather than the scope of our devotion. Where we stand in relationship to God is the foundation and the power of our prayer, not the scope of your godliness. Now let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and of the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Would you pray with me as we open God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your providence you sent your son to the cross. And Christ, when you rose from the dead in victory, you did not leave us as orphans, but gave us your Holy Spirit. Whereby, through him and through the word that he breathed, might instruct us and illuminate our hearts. And so I pray that you would illuminate our hearts this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our hearts and minds to be captivated in delight by the work of our great mediator. I pray that you would decrease me so that Christ may increase. And may my words be clear. May they be spoken according to your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, I like that. It's a good amen. 
I grew up in Kenya and Tanzania, East Africa, and when you say Buona Sifiwe, which means praise the Lord, everybody responds and says, Amen. Let's try it out. Buona Sifiwe. Amina. Amina, Amina. Kweli mungu yu muema. God truly is good. I have had a heart for the world since, truly, a very young age. But one of the things that has captivated my heart more than anything else is coming into a greater knowledge and understanding of who Christ is and the gospel that he represents. Because he is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the power by which the darkness of this world is expelled. He is the delight and the void that fills our hearts. Even though we try and seek other things to fill our hearts in this life, the only one who fills it and brings a smile to our heart that will never depart for all of eternity is Jesus Christ alive. Not Jesus Christ in the grave. Do you understand the difference that we have a living faith, not a memorialized faith? That as we sing this morning, have you thought that our living Christ actually leans in and delights in your singing. He hears and delights as his people gather together. Now my role as a preacher and pastor is to unpack God's word and hopefully show you the majesties and the mysteries of who Christ is. And there are three key questions that the pastor continually asks. The first one is this, do you have salvation? Not some ambiguous, mystical, spiritual experience. But I'm talking about salvation in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place in order to satisfy the wrath of God, reconcile us to the Father, kept the law, even the Sabbath on Saturday, rose again the third day in glory to justify us. By his resurrection, we are justified and that he ascended back into heaven where his ministry ongoing intercedes for us. And we look forward one day, he's going to return in glory. Do you have that salvation? Okay, first question. Second question, do you really have that salvation? Because one of the job of the pastor and the preacher is to constantly challenge the religious and say, are you playing a game? Or do you know Jesus? And if you do know him, third question, do you have joy in your salvation? Are you walking in a way that is godly and honoring to him? Are you enjoying the blessings that he has given to you? Or are you still so captivated in your affections by this world that your joy is constantly robbed? Hebrews, as a book, is written primarily with the last two questions in mind. He is writing to a Jewish audience who knows the Old Testament, and he speaks very Old Testament Imagery, And we're going to try and unpack some of that imagery today. But as we look at this imagery, he's challenging the religious saying, do you really know what Christ has done for you? And are you operating out of that joy and out of that position, that nearness to God that Christ has affected on your behalf? Because Satan's lie, isn't it amazing how Satan's lies always begin with a question? Are you really? Do you really? Fill in the blank. But my question this morning to you is, where do you stand? Because your godly life, your prayer life, everything hinges upon understanding your location before God. So where do you stand? To where have you come? 
Have you come to Sinai or have you come to Zion? I'm going to tell you this morning a tale of two mountains, not a tale of two cities, a tale of two mountains, Sinai and Zion. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to use a very real historical event to picture a very real spiritual reality. That of Sinai and that of Zion. As we read through this text, here's a big idea to keep in mind. The big idea out of this text is an admonition to the listeners in Hebrews with the question, or the statement, I'm sorry, remember where you stand. Remember where you stand. Now, as we read through this text, we say, well, what are these two mountains? And by the way, what is this speaking blood in verse 24? And what does this blood say? You know, whenever you're reading God's word, simple, good understanding of God's word begins with just asking lots of questions. Just ask questions of the text. Do you read God's word and ask questions or do you just breeze over it to check the box out and say, hopefully I did my talisman of spirituality so that God will protect me? Or are you getting into God's word so you can actually know God? And how can you know someone if you don't ask basic questions like, what is your name, where are you from, and who are you? So when you get into God's word, who are you, God? What drives your heart? What do you want of me? And how do you love me? Mountain number one, let's talk about Mount Sinai. Because I'm just going to give you two points this morning. And the first point is this. Mount Sinai is separation from God by his terrifying holiness. Mount Sinai is separation from God by his terrifying holiness. The bad news needs to come before the good news. So let's get into the bad news first. Not the bad news of God, but Sinai is Bad news, but with a ray, a hint, a pride open door of good news as God shows himself to humanity. So separation from God by his terrifying holiness is Mount Sinai. Let's go to Mount Sinai. So turn with me to Exodus 19. We're going to come back to Hebrews to keep your finger there. But we want to get a picture of this real historical event that the writer of Hebrews is referring to. When we look at Sinai, we see God's holiness and our unholiness. And God's holiness and our unholiness separates us. In Exodus 19, what's going on? The other thing about understanding God's word is don't just let, please, if you're looking to read God's word well, don't just open the Bible, read a verse without understanding the context. So what's the context of Exodus 19? 400 years under subjugation by Pharaoh, God shows his miracle and his power to the nations that there's only one God. His name is Yahweh. He's greater than any of the gods of the nations. He does that systematically, plague by plague, in Egypt. Leads his people out to the Red Sea, which, by the way, is symbolic of death. But God makes a way through death into life on the other side. And that is where they're going to meet God at Mount Sinai. So they're through here. They're about to enter the promised land. So they hope, there's a 40-year gap of disobedience, we're not going to get into that. But here, Yahweh is going to show himself to the Israelites. And here's how he shows himself. Verse 11, chapter 19 of Exodus. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. 
he shall not live. There's this demarcation that is put across the bottom of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and there's a limit that says, do not come up here. If you cross this threshold of God's holiness, you will be destroyed. In other words, God's holy presence, and what is holiness? If you want to get a good description on holiness, I often don't recommend people unless they've been dead for 300 years because then you know that they've run their race well. Stephen Charnock, an early Puritan, wrote a book called The Attributes of God. And there's a section there on holiness. Read that section on holiness. Powerful illustration of who God is. God's holiness is his uniqueness, is his absolute unstained purity that carries with it an omnipotent power that cannot in any measure tolerate anything that is less than perfectly holy, perfectly good. So this holiness of God had so saturated this place, Sinai, that the mountain itself could not be touched without bringing death. Whether beast or man, whether it was volitional or ignorance, it is not just simply a moral question, it is a state of being question. That the actual, even the animal, could not, it wasn't a volitional decision for him to cross the threshold, but if he does, he will die. It will die because God's holiness is perfect and it cannot be breached. On Exodus 19, verse 16, look with there with me if you would, just a few verses down in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. What you need to see here is that the Israelites approach Mount Sinai, but there's a line and they stop there. There is a gulf between them and God. They are unholy, he is holy. There's no way they can enter that holy presence. And that holiness, that presence of God manifests itself in some of the most terrifying geological and weather patterns that we in our humanity can comprehend. Just out of curiosity, if you, if you want, go to Google and type in volcano and thunderstorm together. There is a rare phenomenon where such a volcanic eruption happens that the eruption itself and all the smoke and the gases create its own super thunderstorm. And there are these pictures that have captured volcanoes in eruption with streaks of lightning and thunder. And what do you do when you see that type of power? You know what? Let's go have a picnic next to it. <laughs> you know what you do? You run the other way. There is no doubt why these people are trembling before this mighty discharge of immense power. Lightning and thunder by itself are just incredible feats of, of power. Did you know that lightning can channel up to a billion, not a million, a billion volts of electricity and can ignite the air around it to five times hotter than the surface of the sun? That's lightning. 
Do you know what thunder is? Thunder is the reaction to the presence of immense power. So what happens is electricity, all those billion volts of electricity, passes through the air. The air expands and contracts with such rapidity that it creates a sonic boom. And that's what you hear when you hear thunder. Thunder in itself is not the power, but it is the auditory reference that says in this place was just immeasurable power. So what we have here is the immeasurable omnipotence of God flashing and thundering and even quaking the mountain. Now what can tremble a mountain greatly? Maybe a couple hundred nukes planted underneath it. And that's not exaggeration. To shift the ocean floor just a few meters in such a way that it caused the tsunami that inundated and destroyed Japan was the equivalent to thousands of nuclear weapons in raw energy. For God to simply quake a mountain are scales of energy that we cannot even comprehend. We are in the presence of a holy, righteous God. And that when he speaks, it says when he speaks, his voice carries such incalculable power. His voice thunders in magnificent omnipotence. And if people try and approach God on their own terms, they will be destroyed. Exodus 19, verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me for just a moment, please. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests come near to the Lord and consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. What's happening? There's some people down there that in their arrogance, they want to see more. And they want to break through. And God in his grace, don't take this as angry God, Old Testament versus new God uh, in the New Testament who's happy and joyful. Same God. God in his grace says, I don't want them to be destroyed. So I'm reminding you, don't breach my holiness. Whenever people come to God on their own terms in their own righteousness, in their own efforts, the end result will be destruction, death. That's what Exodus here is teaching us. In Exodus 24, verse 15 to 17, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So magnificent glory. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. So we have that image of what's going on. That was all in the context of Exodus. Now let's go to the New Testament and let's see the complete picture and analogy that the writer wants to make. You remember how the Israelites came to Sinai, he says? He's telling the people in Hebrews, those who know Christ, he says, you have not come to what? A blazing fire, a conflagration of power, the consuming presence of the Holy One, that threatens to sweep you away or darkness and gloom now we we always equate darkness in our modern sensibilities with evil in the old testament psalm 18 for reference um, usually darkness and gloom connotes the presence of the wrath of god the anger of god you have not come to a place a conflagration of power under the wrath of god 
You see, what is Sinai? Sinai was a manifestation of God's holy wrath. We don't think of it that way sometimes, but that's what it was. But then God in his grace says, listen, I am angry at sin. There is a wrath over sin and evil. But in my grace, I am going to appoint an intercessor, Moses, who is going to give you a law. And this law is going to act like a peace treaty between God and man. And that law is the basis by which we can have any sort of communion. It's an act of grace on God's part, prying open the door to make a way into his presence. But you've not come to blazing fire, to darkness and gloom, or to a tempest. It's like a hurricane, a mighty force of nature that quakes and destroys. Or the sound of a trumpet. The sound of a trumpet is royal authority and declaration of divine presence. Or to a voice that made people say, speak no more, it terrifies me. The voice of the Lord. Oh, let's just meditate on a moment for the voice of the Lord. You know, Psalm 29 says the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. There is a sermon by Charles Spurgeon that is called The Majestic Voice. Just Google it. Charles Spurgeon, The Majestic Voice. Read it. Powerful sermon. Meditating on the voice of God. I look forward one day to getting to heaven and seeing the face of God. But have you ever thought about hearing the voice of God? A voice that is untainted by sin, a voice that is absolutely pure and holy and bears with it omnipotent power. Think about it this way. Have you ever sat under music, music so beautiful that it moves your heart and your emotions to where you just want to cry or fall on your face? If Fallen music through fallen musicians, through your fallen faculties can so move you. What will it be like to hear the voice of God in heaven in perfection? Will we not just say, God, just speak. Speak. We don't want to hear our voices. We want to hear yours. In Job chapter 37, verse 1 to 5, Job said, This my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. And after his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. God's voice, so majestic and powerful, and in and of itself generates lightnings and thunders because of its raw omnipotence. And we know that God's word holds power because with a word he created the cosmos, did he not? This is the word, the voice of our God. Now at Sinai, when you are separated from God and holiness, it is stop speaking and we recoil in fear. And that's what the people of God felt. Oh God, stop speaking. We cannot endure this. This is a fear that recoils and hides and runs from God because a cognizant awareness of he is holy and we are not. Moses, even, remember he, he wrote Exodus years later. So Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He wrote this book years later. And even years later, he's still captivated by 
the raw power of God so much it says that he was terrified and he trembled with fear. But, but, but let me draw an important distinction. The fear of Moses is not the same as the fear of the people. The fear of the people was unholiness, holiness, recoil in fear. Running from God. God had enabled Moses to come into his presence. The fear that Moses felt was a trembling fear and awe that said, Lord, show me more. It was a reverence that drew him in, not cast him away. The main point of Sinai, brothers and sisters, is separation from a holy God. And is that where you stand? You say, well, I'm I'm at a Christian seminary. I'm, I'm a faculty teacher. I don't care. Your eternal soul is worth way too much to play games. When we talk about a holy God, does that terrify you? At any moment that you could be swept away by his terrifying holiness? Those of you watching online, maybe right now or later, where do you stand? This is the most important question that you will ever ask or need to ask for all eternity. Where do you stand? Now the writer of Hebrews says to them, this is not where you stand. And then the question begs, why do they not stand at Sinai? And the answer is because a better Moses has come. A better intercessor has come. A more complete ruler and prophet. You see, what, you know what Moses was? Moses was an intercessor on behalf of the people who brought the law. He acted on behalf of the people to God in a priestly function, but also acted on behalf of God back to the people, frankly, in a royal function. But he was a flawed or an insufficient intercessor. And the law that he brought, though it made a way and prepared a way for a greater reality, was also not complete. So a greater intercessor was needed. Someone who could take care of the law that separates people from God. Now the writer of Hebrews says, this is not where you stand. Where do you stand? Point number two. You stand at Mount Zion, brought to God by the blood that speaks a better word. Sinai is separation from God. Zion is being brought to God by the blood that speaks a better word. Now, as we read through this text, I want you to keep an image in mind because remember the writer of Hebrews is an Old Testament guy. He's got this imagery in mind that when you came to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you have the Psalms of Ascent, you have this approach to God. And the first thing that you did, you came to Mount Zion, that promontory in Jerusalem upon which the temple sat. You come to the mount. And then you enter the mount and come to the people of God to meet with God. But that's where you stop. You stop in the outer courts of the temple because the only person that goes all the way into the Holy of Holies is the high priest. That's the image that's going on here. Now, with that in mind, you've not come to Zion, but rather you have come to Mount Zion. 
The dwelling promontory of God, the mountaintop, has its roots even in ancient Near Eastern thought. We even see even in Greek mythology the gods lived on the mountains. And people will say, see, that is proof that the Bible borrows from its Near Eastern cultures in order to bolster its view of God. Well, I would say that there's another plausible explanation And that is early man coming out of the garden had right views of God and that fallen humanity aberrated the views of God coming out of Eden. Okay, so we don't always have to say, you know, the Bible borrowed from its ancient Near Eastern culture. No matter of fact, often it's quite the opposite. The ancient Near Eastern culture, do you know that if you look at the Ugaritic text, these ancient clay tablets that were discovered, there has been an interesting theory that has been supported by going through that the older that you go through the text, the less there is a polytheistic view of God, but more of a monotheistic view of God. So the further back you go in history, humanity had the understanding and the knowledge of one supreme being. And as you go forward in history, the aberrations of fallen humanity result in polytheism as you go further even into um, ancient history. You've come to Mount Zion. The place of meeting with God to the city of the living God. You've come to a place. You've come to a city. You've come to Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? The city of peace. Salem, shalom, salam in Arabic, all the same root words that have the idea of peace. You've come to a place of peace. Sinai is a place of war. The law brokers a temporary treaty between God and man who are at war with one another. That is the state of being. But now you are no longer in a place of war. You've come to the city of peace. Hostilities have ceased. Peace is now the prevailing and indeed the sole reality. You've come to innumerable angels. That Isaiah 6 picture a full company of angelic power and majesty and they're in festal gathering. So in the Old Testament, often we see angels arrayed for war. They have swords, they're destroyers, they're in warfare. But at this place, these angelic warriors, which by the way, here's one of my, my soap boxes. Angels are not pudgy Precious moments, little beings. You know where we get these little naked baby uh, pictures of angels? You know where it comes from? Greek mythology. You know what angels are pictured like in scripture? They are not these dainty beings. Forgive me. Actually, don't forgive me. Angels are terrifying, burning ones, the seraphim of God. That one angel destroyed a Syrian army of 180,000 people. That if you multiply that out across the legions that Jesus said he could call down in Gethsemane, those angels could have killed well over 40 billion people. And that would have just been a minuscule scope of their power. These are incredibly powerful beings. Beings of immense glory. And all of these beings of immense power and glory, setting aside their warfare, 
And they are there at the foot of the throne with their eyes covered saying, holy, holy, holy. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is the picture that we have come to. To the assembly of the firstborn, a people gathered who are blessed with firstborn rights. The firstborn, that's what it says. You've come to God and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You see that presence entry into the presence of God is because you've been made perfect. You see that? You can't come to Sinai because you are imperfect. But here you can come in because you've been made perfect. Okay, but here you stop because you cannot go into the Holy of Holies. You have no right to go in there. But what does it say? But you've come to a better Moses, a better intercessor, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, the high priest, who goes from the place of sacrifice in the outer court to the laver of holiness into the inner courts of the temple, to the bread of the covenant, to the lampstand and to the incense burning on the inside. He performs in complete purity and holiness, rips the curtain in two, marches into the holy of holies over the ark of the covenant in which the law of God resides and not with the blood of bulls and goats, but because he died on the cross, he walks in with his blood, covers the law with his blood opens the way, and then to all of us who are outside says, now come on in all the way. You see that image? Outside, now brought near by what? Your goodness? Your devotion? Your holiness? No, you are all the way in because you have a Savior who bled and died on the cross and he gave his blood to cover the law, to seal the covenant treaty and once and for all say it is done. You've come to Jesus, the sprinkled blood. The only person who sees the sprinkled blood is the high priest, but you see it, you've come to it because of who your high priest is. All the way into the Holy of Holies. You're standing at Zion because of what the blood speaks. Do you see that at the end? It says, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, I ask the question because I ask questions of the text. What is this blood speaking? What does it say? This is a question you need to ask. What does the blood say? It speaks a word better than Abel, so what does Abel's blood say? Well, Abel's blood in Genesis 4.10, Abel killed by Cain, and God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What is the blood of Abel crying for? The blood of Abel is crying for justice, justice. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word, so what does it say? If Abel's blood says Justice. Jesus' blood says, justice done. Justice done. Abel's blood, a cry for justice. Jesus' blood on the cross says, justice done through me. Now, what does that blood accomplish? What does it accomplish? 
I did a word study throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament looking at the blood and the effects of the blood. And if you just go through this, here's just a snapshot of what the blood accomplishes. In Acts 20, verse 28, the blood purchases us. Ephesians 1, 7, the blood gives us redemption. Hebrews 9, 14, the blood cleanses us. Hebrews 9, 22, the blood forgives us. 1 John 1, 7, the blood purifies us. Hebrews 10, 9, the blood gives us confidence. Hebrews 13, 12, the blood makes us holy. Leviticus 17, 11, the blood gives us atonement. Luke 22, 20, the blood seals the promise. Revelation 1, 5, the blood gives freedom. Revelation 12, 11, the blood cries triumph. Romans 5, 9, the blood says justified. John 6, 56, the blood accomplishes union. Ephesians 2, 13, the blood brings us near to God. Sinai, you can't come near. At Zion, because of the blood of Christ, you are brought all the way in. By his work. It is not your work. Salvation is God's work. We believe in faith, but it is his work that seals and secures us. And that is where you stand. He secures you. You cannot unsecure yourself. Once you have been brought in, it cannot be undone. Now, I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but so be it, okay? You do not dance in and out of salvation, okay? You are saved by the work of the blood. And if we believe that salvation, true salvation can be lost, what that means is you are depurchased, de-redeemed, de-cleansed, unforgiven, de-purified, have confidence robbed from you, your unholiness, your holiness is stripped from you, you are separated from God once again, the promise is removed from you, you're put back from freedom into slavery, you are de-justified and unborn and de-adopted from God, you are separated from him, you are cast out from his presence. So when we talk about salvation, and losing our salvation, let us not be careless with our words. If we say we can lose our salvation, let's understand what we're talking about. And I would argue fervently, the text nowhere speaks of that type of salvation that can be cast aside so lightly. It was not your work to save you. It is God's work to keep you and you cannot unsave yourself. The grace of God keeps you, prevails you, and empowers you. And if you truly belong to him, you will see him in his glory. Now you may ask and say, what does any of this have to do with prayer? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have three children who know that they can come right into my presence and sit on my lap and talk to me why. I'm their father and they're my children. You've been brought nigh into the terrifying presence of the holy God, but not as your judge, he is now your father. When you pray, you pray on the basis of the blood and the work of Christ. So, as Hebrews says, chapter four, verse 16, 
And by the way, you should tattoo this on the back of your eyelids. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why would you not pray when you have the audience of the king? Why would your sins keep you from prayer when it is not your holiness that enables you to be there, but it is the work of Christ? So we come and we say, Heavenly Father, on the basis of the magnificent work of Christ, I come to you. Remember where you stand, brothers and sisters. Remember where you stand. Not Sinai, Zion. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we pray and ask with boldness that you would help us to be a people of the blood of Christ, a people of the risen Son of God who satisfied the requirements of the law, who took us from Sinai and brought us to Zion. Now help us to live with boldness and with joy and with delight in coming into our Abba Father's presence. And may we remember that we are there because of Christ alone, Jesus alone, his work alone, the blood that atones and makes us one with God. May you be honored and glorified in us today. As we go about the rest of this conference, bless the speakers, open our hearts, minister our souls through your spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.